become misfortune. <laughs> I'm watching you. Hey guys, welcome to episode 40 of Macabre Misfortunes. Hello. So Tracy, today we're going to discuss a plane crash that forced some major aviation reform in the country. That would be the 1956 Grand Canyon mid-air collision. This doesn't sound fun (laughs) at all. But continue on. This one actually, though, has a little bit of paranormal added to it as well, so we'll discuss that part at the end. Okay. Let's first talk about the actual incident. So there was two planes involved. It was a United Airlines Douglas DC-7, which was a pretty new plane back then, Mm -hmm. and also a TWA Lockheed L-1049 Super Constellation, which was also a newer plane back then. These were when the planes were really starting to become bigger. Oh, more yeah. like jets? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, they, yeah, they were commercial planes. Uh-huh. But one of these, the actual um, uh, Douglas DC-7 was a prop plane. Okay. So it had propellers and stuff mm-hmm. on, on it. Mm-hmm. Anyway, both of these were commercial passenger planes. Both planes left L.A. International Airport just minutes apart from each other. One was going to Chicago and one was going to Kansas City. Mm-hmm. The two planes collided over the Grand Canyon, which was, at that time, uncontrolled airspace. And you're probably thinking, what does uncontrolled airspace mean? It's actually exactly what it sounds like. The pilots had the responsibility to maintain separation, which is basically sea and be seen. There were no air traffic controllers. Oh, good Lord, what if it was a cloudy day? That particular space okay so what if it was a cloudy day or it's raining and stormy you just had to like turn on your windshield wipers and hope to god you don't see nothing well all these are are great questions but you got to remember this was back during a time in the 50s where air travel was really just starting to become popular oh how scary is that yeah so there weren't as many planes in the air and now you're getting to the point where there's a bunch of planes yeah and situations like this would make those questions more evident about Yikes. we need to do something and eventually Yikes. that's what ended up happening all right so this would bring attention to how antiquated the actual state of the air traffic control was at this time and it would force changes so yes unfortunately you had to have accidents like and, this before and that's somebody something. makes changes oh my gosh all 128 passengers and crew on board both planes died making Aww. this the first commercial airline accident to exceed 100 casualties. Aww, I'm so sorry. All right, so let's get into some specifics. TWA Flight 2 was being flown by 41-year-old Captain Jack Gandy. <gasps> That's right, Dakota's last name. Oh, my gosh. It departed the airport on Saturday, June 30th, 1956 at 9.01 Pacific Time with 64 passengers and 11 off-duty employees 
with free tickets. Uh, well, now, was this during the day or the night? Well. You said 901, but I didn't hear what you said after that. Oh, AM. Okay. There were also six crew members. The plane was headed for Kansas City. Now, that flight was 31 minutes behind schedule when it departed. So just think about that. If it had left on time. On time, it probably wouldn't have happened. Or if it had only been 25 minutes. Yeah. You know. It's amazing to me, listening to this, that two planes that take off from the airport that are going two different places Mm -hmm. can be that close to each other. Right, right. I mean, then that's uh, like Kansas is over there and Chicago's over there, right? I mean, they're I mean, not that really as far apart. But I mean, you would, I guess, be taking the same route until you needed to. To switch off. To switch off. So anyways, it flew controlled airspace as far as Daggett, California. And at that point, uh, Captain Gandhi turned right and he headed toward radio range near Trinidad, Colorado. So that would be the next point where they would have... Mm-hmm you know, service again. TWA Flight 2 was now off airway, or as we said earlier, otherwise known as uncontrolled airspace. The other plane, United Airlines Flight 718, was flown by 48-year-old Captain Bob Shirley. It left LA at 9.04 Pacific time. So what was it, three three minutes different? Mm-hmm. 9.01 yeah. mm-hmm. and 9.04. It had 53 passengers and five crew members. It was bound for Midway Airport in Chicago. The plane was in a controlled airspace northeast of Palm Springs, California. Then, a bunch of technical talk that we could get into that I'm not going to mess with, basically said that the the with the speed and the altitude, but it uh, it wasn't relevant to the story, so I didn't bring it up. What I will say though is that both crews had estimated that it would cross the Painted Desert at about 10.31 Pacific Standard Time. So they did both plan on being, after they took off, being at Painted Desert at that same time. Okay, so can the pilots talk to each other then over the radio and no, say, hey... They don't, they, don't, they don't know who's there. They, they're, these reports were through air traffic control, but the pilots themselves didn't know. Oh, Okay. And since they're, you know, now if they were in the area, they could say, hey, pilot one, be on the lookout for this person coming. Because we discussed that with the other uh, small plane crash that we did a couple weeks ago, mm-hmm. that they had similar situations where they had to kind of be seen and be seen, even though they were in a controlled mm-hmm. section. So anyway, the Painted Desert is about a 240 mile long stretch, though, all of which was outside of controlled airspace, but still... 240-mile stretch, they both knew they were going to be at the Painted Desert. But out of 240 miles, they both ended up at the exact same spot. That's really, that's whack. All things considered, assuming that there were no course changes, the two planes shouldn't even be close to each other. But they were. As the two aircrafts approached the uh, Grand Canyon, they were at approximately the same speed and the same altitude. The pilots were likely maneuvering towards some towering cumulus clouds in the area. It's believed that the that the planes probably passed each other on different sides of the cloud. Oh, whoa. All right, so let's take a quick sponsor break, Tracy, and then I'll tell you what happened next. Okay. All right, at 10.30 a.m., 
the two aircraft collided over the Grand Canyon. The post-crash anal analysis determined that the United DC-7 was kind of banking to the right mm -hmm. and pitching down at the time of the collision. This means that the pilots of the United plane probably spotted the TWA plane at and the And he last was trying to make a maneuver to get out of his way. And tried to maneuver. Which I'm going to tell you, I don't. these people who figure this stuff out are amazing. Because we get into this a little more, I'll bring it back up. But you're going to find out. Yeah, but I mean, if he was kind of pointed down but and going to the right, would his wing would have clipped him? Well, we're going to get into all that. Slow down, Mabel. Oh. Getting ahead of the story. Sorry. The United Plane's upraised wings clipped the top of the TWA vertical stabilizer and then it struck the fuselage, causing the tail assembly to break away from the rest of the frame. The United Plane's propeller at the same time was uh, chopping big gashes into the bottom of the TWA's fuselage. Oh, jeez. After the collision, the TWA plane went to a near vertical dive plunging into the Grand Canyon at near 700 feet per second. It slammed into the north slope of the ravine on the northeast slope of the of a, an area called Temple Butte, and it disintegrated on impact, instantly killing all on board. The United plane rapidly descended and collided with the south side of the cliff. I think this is called, I looked it up a couple ways, Chuar Butte. And it disintegrated, killing all on board it. So one went straight down, the other crashed inside the cliff. So let's talk search and recovery. There was no type of radar observation back then on commercial planes. That was something that was only part of uh, military planes. There was also no homing beacons or black boxes aboard either aircraft. Hmm. Again, changes that happened because of these types of things. As there were no credible witnesses to the collision or the subsequent crash, the only immediate indication of trouble was when the United Company radioed operator Salt Lake City and basically said uh, they had a garbled transmission from Flight 718 that was last heard of either plane. So they were like, oh, this seems weird. So here's what they got. The last one was the voice of co-pilot Robert Harms saying, Salt Lake, we are going in, exclamation point. Then you could hear the shrill voice of Captain Shirley. He could be heard in the background, presumably like futilely struggling with the, uh, the controls as he implored the plane to pull up, pull up. And mm. that's the last thing of either plane that they heard. Oh my gosh. After neither flight showed up their destination on time, the two planes were declared as missing and a search and rescue mission was started. Now, the wreckage was actually first seen later that day near the confluence of the uh, Colorado and the Little Colorado Rivers by Henry and Palin Hudgen. They were two brothers who operated a Grand Canyon airline, a small little air taxi service. Mm -hmm. TWA and United hired Swiss Air Rescue and some Swiss mountain climbers to go to the scene. This was a part of the... Uh, the canyon that's almost impossible to reach. Oh. So they had to hire expert climbers and expert oh my researchers. Gosh. On top to, of everything else, man. They were sent to gather the remains of the passengers. 
Because of the incredibly violent impacts, no bodies were recovered intact, and positive ID of most of the remains was not possible. Oh. On July 9, 1956, a mass funeral for the victims of TWA Flight 2 was held at the Canyon South Rim. 29 unidentified bodies of the United Flight 718 were buried in four coffins at the Grand Canyon Pioneer Cemetery. Four coffins. 29 unidentified bodies in four coffins. Those awful. I just, those poor people. 66 of the 70 TWA passengers and crew were buried in a mass grave at the Citizens Cemetery in Flagstaff, Arizona. Now, Tracy, a number of years passed before most of the wreckage was even removed from the Grand Canyon. Why? I mean, I was because so it was to hard to get to, but it took that long? Yeah, and some pieces still remain there today. All right. So let's talk a little bit about the changes that the crash helped create. As near misses and mid-air collisions started to continue, the public demanded some action. And in 1957, increased funding was allocated to modernize air traffic control. They were used, they used that money to hire and train more air traffic controllers and procure much needed radar, which at the time, like I said, was only on military aircraft. The Federal Aviation Act of 1958 created the FAA and it gave total authority over American airspace, including military activities. Now, even back then, before that, the air traffic controllers knew the commercial planes that were in the air, but they didn't know the military planes. So they very well could send a plane up and a military plane could crash into it because they didn't know it was going to be in the area. Oh, my gosh. But this it, but this gave them the ability to be over top of everything, including the military. So now if military is going to send up planes to do some kind of uh, um, whatever act or whatever they're going to do or uh, practice session Training, or something, yeah. they had to inform the FAA and air traffic controllers so they would know and they could route planes around that or whatever. All right. That's pretty much the main <sighs> stuff that happened with that. So let's talk a little bit about the paranormal activity. Now, first of all, we could probably do an entire episode on Grand Canyon hauntings. Hint, hint. We're doing that tomorrow. So yeah, mm-hmm. we're doing the rest of these stories tomorrow. Yeah. Because I thought there were so many stories that I thought these were all cool. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to include those so it's like a continuation all right let's first stick to the story today though that's all we're going to talk about today is the hauntings that involve this story and then tomorrow we're not going to touch on that at all okay, okay? since the accident there have been reports of spirits wandering around the area even all the way up to today i mean i can imagine how such a traumatic thing to happen I mean, how we don't even know if they saw it coming. It just happened, or that just happened. Oh my gosh! I mean, last second, obviously, because yeah, you heard the right the one captain, but oh. and and by the way, the that area has a new nickname. What Crash Canyon? Oh, that's what it's been known as ever since that wreck. I don't like that. Now these spirits are said to be dressed in business and city attire. Dresses, suits, that mm-hmm. type of thing, which you can imagine, probably in the 50s, people dressed up. To of go course. On a plane. Oh, yeah. So, you know, 
Some of the reports say that the people are speaking like there's absolutely nothing wrong, while others say that people look to be confused and crying and searching for loved ones who were on the plane with them. Visitors have also reported eerie lights moving about in Crash Canyon. Now, there's a little twist when it comes to this area. Some might actually call it an eerie coincidence. Crash Canyon is located near a sacred Halpi Native American site called Sipapu. 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 Which, to their, their legends, they believe that this was a gateway to the underworld. Oh. Now, according to the Halpies, this is where the ancestors emerged long ago. It's where they came from. But it's also where the dead come back. And Native Americans are very superstitious about this. Mm-hmm. Park rangers are also very superstitious about it. Helicopter pilots are also superstitious and so superstitious about it, they won't look down when they fly over there. There are several stories of people who have actually gotten sick and were even struck by lightning in that area. What are they? So they they are afraid something will happen to them if they look down? Is that what they're afraid of? Yeah, I guess. I guess they figure, you know, I'm so far in the air, I'd probably not want to look down. Oh. And there's been a lot of people killed from plane and helicopter crashes. Oh. So we'll touch on that tomorrow. Okay. But we touched on 128 of them today. Author Andrea Langford, she actually hiked between the two crash sites. And she said that she heard voices outside of her tent. So get this. She's in her tent. She starts hearing these voices. She peeked out. She said she saw about a dozen people walking up the trail. Most were in city clothes. Some were in long dresses. They were talking as if nothing was unusual. They're just having a conversation, walking up the path in street clothes where people don't hike like that. I wonder if she could make out anything what they said. No, well, she could, but she said they were just talking normal, Mm -hmm. just regular conversations. Then she said she saw five or six Native Americans. They followed and they were speaking in a language that she didn't understand. So she climbs out of her tent to look around, and when she did, she said they all vanished. Oh, that is so eerie. Oh, my gosh. Wow. To experience something like that, though, would be pretty cool. It would be. Now, as far as the Sipapu, Miss Langford said that every time she attempted to reach it, she would start to get within about a quarter of a mile, and she would feel really sick and felt so bad that she always had to turn back. She said that maybe she just doesn't need to go there to that place. And in fact, she said it doesn't really, she doesn't really think anybody needs to see Mm -hmm. it. So you ready for the fun fact of the day? God, there's a fun fact after that? There's always a fact. April 22nd, 2014, the site of the crash was declared a National Historic Landmark, making it the very first landmark for an event that happened in the air. And by the way, that little section right there Mm -hmm. is closed off to the public and has been since the 50s. Well, good. It should be. Because it's such a dangerous place anyway. It is. It's dangerous and out of respect, you know? I I don't know why. I don't know. That's... I mean, I don't think it's a place you would want to see. No. Without the, you know, death that happened there and stuff. I don't know if some people are just curious. Yeah, it's more about curiosity. Right, right. Hmm. Well... 
lesser souls. All right, that wraps it up, guys. I hope you enjoyed that. And like I said, tune in tomorrow. We got uh, four or five more Grand Canyon stories. All righty. All right, we'll talk to you later. Bye, guys.